people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Catherine Coldiron. She is the author of Junk Film. It is a fantastic book all about bad movies and basically why you should be watching them. Catherine is a wonderful writer and I had a great time talking with her. Find out more about her over at kcoldiron.com. Definitely pick up Film Junk. You will not regret it. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the interview. Catherine Coldiron, I'm very happy to be talking with you. Can you tell me a little bit of your background and how you even got into writing? I've been writing since I was seven years old, but I've been a critic for a much shorter time. When I was in college, I discovered that film was my jam. So I did an interdisciplinary major in college in film studies and philosophy, and then spent a decade plus doing other things, trying a little bit to be a writer, but I still thought that I could write short stories and I really can't. So moved on from that. And somehow I discovered somewhere in grad school that I either wanted to write hybrid work about film or I wanted to write straight criticism. And straight criticism is where this book came from. What would you consider hybrid work? I've published a few essays that mix together film criticism, fiction, and memoir. Those are messy and interesting. Like I I used Singing in the Rain to talk about layers of falsity in life generally, but particularly in the fact that I have dental veneers and how people dubbing each other's voices is not dissimilar to fake teeth on top of real teeth. Was there a particular film when you were coming up that really lit a fire under you and you said, oh my gosh, I have to write about this. I have to work out my thoughts on paper about this particular movie. That's actually two different questions. The movie that made me convinced that I wanted to do nothing but watch movies for the whole rest of my life was Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I saw that on first run when I was a young teenager and it was a revelation. I don't think I closed my eyes for the entire two hours or whatever. But the one that made me realize that I wanted to write about it was actually Boogie Nights, because I wrote this crazy long email to one of my mentors about it, about all these things that I thought about it and what it was doing visually and this and that. And he just wrote back to me with this very short, I think you should take a few classes about this. (laughs) This was like in college when I still thought that I was a politics major. And then he said, yeah. Wait, try this. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I should try this. And now you've written so many articles. I know you've written a lot for what LA Review of Books. You've written a monograph on Plan 9. Where did Junk Film come from, your latest book? Junk Film did come from the Plan 9 monograph. And it includes that, for the record, for your listeners. You don't have to buy both books. You can just buy Junk Film. I wanted to write about Plan 9 because it was the only movie that I could think of that I could write a full hundred pages about. I had a friend who ran a line of book publishing that was 
publishing monographs about cult movies. So I thought, okay, well, what movie could that be for me? And from it was immediately Plan 9. So I wrote that 100 pages, but then I realized that I wasn't done talking about bad movies and everything that I had to say about them. And the more I watched bad movies, the more I realized that what I had to say about them was about these particular movies that had useful badnesses or otherwise interesting sharp corners that I could talk about and work through and figure out how they were instructive in terms of movie making or criticism or whatever other way. I think there is a book length work in me about this and what movies am I going to write about? And so I just picked the ones that I thought I had the most to say about. And that turned out to be a book length book. (laughs) The only two essays that I didn't include in the original manuscript when I sent it to publishers were the one about Amanda McKittrick Ross and Sean Penn, because that's books instead of movies. And the one about best friends, the Greg Sestero, Tommy Wiseau movie, because that's not about a bad movie per se. It involves a bad movie, a very famous one. But that movie is a good movie, in my opinion. But when I was talking to my publisher about beefing up the length of the collection, I said, I've got these other two that sort of are a little bit like the rest of the work in this book. And he read them and he said, yeah, I want these. Put them in the book. (laughs) I went, "Okay." so that's where we went. Everything does feel like it comes from the same place, even if it does branch into a good movie with people who are behind one of the most famous bad movies ever. And then also, yeah, the the writing. I was very unfamiliar with the authors that you discuss in there. Obviously, I know Sean Penn, but I wasn't aware of his fiction writing. Glad that he has only blessed us with two books so far. And I really hope he doesn't write anymore. And in the notes at the end of the book, I write what's been one of the great pleasures of my life to introduce people to Amanda McKittrick Ross because her badness is singular and towering and astonishing. Yeah, she's she kind of write like Manos plays. She really does. And I've talked about this with Dana Gold because he is always looking for other movie screenplays to do. He has done Plan 9 from Outer Space where he and a bunch of friends do a dramatic reading of Plan 9 live. And it's a great show, I'm sure. But Are there other movies that can do that, that are that entertaining? Even though they're played straight, they're still hilarious. And he asked, you know, do you know any movies that I could do this with? And I said, I don't know. I mean, maybe Robot Monster. And he said, no, that's too boring. And I said, I don't know, The Sinister Urge, maybe. And he said, no, it doesn't work. And I said, Showgirls. And he said, no, it's got to be family friendly. But all this is to say, Amanda McKittrick Ross's prose is like the screenplay for Plane 9 from Outer Space. It's so unique. And so special. No one could ever call it good. I was really happy to see you recognize the brilliance of after last season. I actually owe you some thanks for publishing work about it because very little work about it is is available. That's all Jim Donahue. I mean, I was unfamiliar with that movie until he came with that pitch. And I don't remember if he sent me a VHS tape or what it was, but I just image that stands out in my head is that MRI machine that's all just pieces of paper. Yes. As soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, I'm sold. This is fantastic. I did a watch along screening of the movie last month, and that's early in the movie. But when it showed up, I had a couple of people being like, wait, that's supposed to be an MRI machine. I was like, yeah, 
the see the guy moving into it like it's clearly sophisticated piece of equipment it's not just cardboard with paper on top you know neil breen obviously he gets recognized for being the brilliant auteur that he is but i just don't feel like the filmmakers behind after last season really get the recognition they deserve it's true neil breen is is very easily risible like it's really easy to look at him and go oh you're trying to do a thing and you're failing at it whereas After last season, it's not all that clear what it is they're even trying to do. Interpreting it has to come first. And that's where I got hung up. I got lost in trying to interpret it. Whereas Neil Breen's movies, it's all there. It's not hard to figure out what's trying to go on. Yeah, and you have that interesting moment, too, with Tommy Wiseau or even, I can't remember the name of the gentleman that did the shock and awe. What was that? The Birds movie. It's James Nguyen. Pandemic, shock and horror. They have passed from, I'm very sincere about my work to, oh no, it was all a joke all along. Yeah. And it's really interesting how bad, you're probably aware of this, how bad auteurs kind of slot themselves into categories of, I take my work seriously and you should too. So that's like Breen and Claudio Fragasso who made Troll 2. And then people who are like, I don't understand what everyone's laughing at, but it makes money. So I'm going to pivot to being a comedy, which is Wazo and Nguyen. And then there's people who try to make bad work, which never works. <laughs> oh. No, the films that are like destined to be a cult classic, it's maybe not. Yeah, give it five years. We'll see. I do want to talk specifically about at the heart of junk film, at the heart of everything that we've just been discussing. You're looking at art people consider bad, but you're pulling meaning out of it. You're looking at the deeper meaning to why do we even look at this stuff? Why are we fascinated by this? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's, like I said, the heart of your whole book. Yeah, I think that different people are drawn to bad movies for different reasons. I think some people want to mock bad work, which just makes me sad. And it's not really what I seek to do or the work that interests me about bad movies. And then there are folks who want to have a good time at no one's expense, which is my favorite way to do it. And it's old Mystery Science Theater 3000 and current riff tracks do that. And they try to walk that line, I think, pretty carefully where they're enjoying themselves and laughing and making jokes, but not insulting anyone or mocking anyone. But then there are weirdos like me who want to watch bad movies to see, okay, what has gone wrong here and how could we somehow change that or fix it when we make our own art? What can we learn from bad art and its failures in order to make better art or to understand good art better? And then there's also just people who don't really understand the distinction between good and bad and wind up thinking that Ed Wood is some kind of genius. And I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to mock those people, but I don't really understand that move. (laughs) The reclaiming of that is a little tricky to me. Yeah. When I see these articles where it's, it's time to reevaluate the Phantom Menace. And no, it's not. I ended a friendship once because she liked The Phantom Menace genuinely. And I was like, I don't, I can't be friends with you. I'm sorry. I kind of know exactly where you're coming from with that. 
what does your husband think of all of these bad movies that you probably force him to watch? I try not to subject him to the worst of it. He does not like horror movies, which means that a lot of the exploitation verging on horror that I like to watch, especially from the 1970s, is not his jam. And he's also a lot nicer than me, which means that when I'm capable of laughing at something, he's more like, oh my God, those poor people. (laughs) And I love him. We love him. But he has garnered an appreciation for bad art and how, again, how how we look at it to make good art from me. Probably too much. I don't like the way that I've influenced him in our marriage. It would be better if he had his own kids. Is there any movie that you're still struggling with and you want to write about it and you're just like, no, this is too big for me right now, or I just need to get my mind around certain things. I need to study it more, think about it more. I believe there's a book in me about the year 1977 in film, which is both good and bad, but that's a huge project and I haven't figured out how to frame it yet, but I need to because the 50th anniversary of that year comes on us apace. When I think about writing about bad or weird movies, I'd love to write about The Visitor. It's such an interesting, unique film. I also really like Frozen Scream, but it's gross. So I would have a hard time writing about it. Another one like that is The Last House on Dead End Street, which has a bunch of different names. It's a very misanthropic movie. Like it's, it has this nihilistic vision of the world, and that makes it very unpleasant to watch. But it's also... It's got the same vision as Michael Haneke, who does the same thing. He just does it beautifully and precisely. And so I feel like I've got to write about that movie because I'm not sure who else is going to, but I don't want to watch it enough times to understand it closely. There are a lot of movies that I'd love to write about, but having to study them closely is just not appealing to me for whatever reason. Like I'd love to figure out The Visitor, but I also want to just enjoy it instead of turning my critic brain on and being like, okay, what is the deal with the space Jesus? What is that about? Why is Lance Henriksen in this movie? Why has Joanne Nail not become a giant, awesome underground actress? Why? I don't know. She is fantastic. I love her and everything I've seen her in. And yeah, why isn't she? Dumball Rally and Switchblade Sisters. Switchblade Sisters. Are there movies that you see where you're just like, this is verging on bad, but it's just not bad enough for me to pay attention to? Oh, so many. There's jillions of movies like that. Like the way that Hollywood has slid into box office mediocrity in the last 15 years or so makes it really difficult for me to want to work as a contemporary critic. That's why I keep reaching back to the 70s because it's such an interesting decade for a whole bunch of reasons, but it's also short on mediocrity. There's a lot of really weird and really bad and really good, but the sort of bland middle of the road stuff that enforces the bottom line for Hollywood, there's a lot of that in the 1980s. It's not a very interesting decade to write about. There's a lot of that right now, but that it's not as interesting as either end of the spectrum. Yeah. For me, I love a film that swings for the fences, whether they hit the ball and make the home run or whether they just end up as a pile of bones and a carcass on the playing field as long as they're making that effort to do that and the end results are always fascinating totally my favorite film critic when i was young was peter travers and he always 
specified when that happened. He was like, I know that this movie isn't genius, but it's trying. And I'm giving it more stars because it's trying and aiming big as opposed to just making pap for the masses. I do remember him rating Donnie Darko very highly for that reason, that it's a very ambitious film. Whether it's solid gold success, I'm not really sure. But also, Darren Aronofsky does that a lot. Like His work is often incredibly ambitious, even if it's off-putting or strange or doesn't quite pull itself off. Part of why I turned off The Wrestler partway through, just because not worthy of him. Yeah, I'm more about weirdo things like Noah. Noah was a super useful film for me because it made me realize actually what Zack Snyder is doing with the DC universe. And I know we're venturing into territory in which trolls are going to come after me. But the reason I think Snyder is successful at interpreting DC is because he's treating those movies as religious epics and these people as like biblical figures, as opposed to treating them like fun comic book characters. Like that gives it the gravitas that comic book fans so desperately want. And Noah is doing the opposite thing, I think. It's making a biblical epic into or an attempted big blockbuster with heroes and Dark Knight of the Soul and kind of the standard Hollywood thing. That's that's a really interesting move to me. And it's a shame that it didn't really catch on. So when did Junk Film come out? It came out in early May. So as of this recording, just over a month ago. What's been the reception so far? Surprising. I don't know that I don't know anything about sales figures. I know that it has sold copies and it's that it's sold copies to strangers, which is really, for me, the mark of a successful book if you're an indie author. But the way that it has been connecting with people has really been gratifying. People have written me and tweeted at me and stuff saying, I just really love what you're doing. And I heard you on this radio show and send me a signed copy. And I just I really have enjoyed talking to people about it. Yeah, and it's definitely something that I would love to have a book club and read it and talk to friends about it just because there there's so much there and just such interesting stuff and such thought-provoking things, things that I never really would have stopped and thought about before because, of course, we're talking about junk film. Here we are really having great conversations and just everything that you're bringing to the table. I was like, oh, yeah, no, I never really thought about that before. No, that's that is so gratifying from you, especially because you're such a you're a giant in underground cinema. And to say that I thought of things you didn't think of is a real surprise and a pleasure to hear. Were there any pieces that you were thinking of that didn't make it or any movies that you wanted to write about that you just didn't think fit in with this topic? Not really. I wrote an essay last year or the year before somewhere like that about mystery science theater 3000 the old one versus the new one and when i wrote that i dug into the mechanism of mst and like what they do and what they do is not just making jokes it's actually engaging with the movie so i wanted to dig into that but that's a different thing than the criticism on the specific movies that i did it's talking more about how we interact with a film. And I got into that in the final essay in the book, but I didn't think it made sense to dig into that in such a way. And you could break that into a whole book unto itself, just like you talk about old versus new, but there's KTMA versus Comedy Central versus Sci-Fi Network. And even with 
Comedy Central, it's the Joel years versus the Mike years, and then just all of the weird iterations that have happened since then, the Gauntlet, the Gizmodoplex. You can look at all the different casts that have been there and like what you're saying as far as the jokes, you can look at what are the jokes that are just references? What are the ones that they are ad-libbing or they start to do a whole new thing? Or those physical jokes where you see Joel reach up and look over at something and just how do the silhouettes interact with the films as well? There's God, so much stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Physically, yeah. There's, there is a lot there. And the, the fandom is, is really something. Most of them are absolutely wonderful people. And they all have different opinions on who's the best host and what the best mechanisms are and so on. Some people are really into sketches and the prop comedy. And so they're, they think Joel is a better host. I feel like the show is better organized once you get Mike as the host, but some people really miss the kind of more laissez-faire thing that Joel brought to it. So yeah, I'm not saying I would want to crowdsource a book like that, but the differing opinions are kind of part of the texture of the show and what it does. The bigger ways that this show engages with movies, I think haven't even been tapped by critics and thinkers what we do when we sit and watch people watching movies like that's that's so meta and it's just barely examined it's comfort viewing for me when it's saturday morning my wife hasn't gotten out of bed yet i don't want it to be too loud in the house i just turn on an old mst3k and just experience that because i'm like you said i'm watching movies with somebody else and just listening to their conversation and engaging that way. Yeah, it's wild. You could even start to think about things like what movies and why these movies. Obviously, in the early days, it was a lot of packages. So you had that one season where here's four Gamera movies or however many it was. But then you've got Gamera versus Giron, which to me is like the gold standard of all MST3K episodes. But that's not everybody's standard, to your point. And there were times with like Rift Tracks where it's like, why are you doing Star Trek 2? This is a great movie versus why aren't you doing Highlander 2? Rift Tracks has released riffs for movies like Casablanca and The Wizard of Oz. And I know for sure, because of the stuff they've said about it, that they're not saying these movies are bad. They're saying that they can write two hours of jokes about them. And because Casablanca is a movie that I have issues with, clearly, I love the riff for it. Like, I love it. The stuff that they poke fun at and the stuff that they point out makes me see the movie in a richer way. However, I would never watch the riffs for the original Star Wars trilogy because that's, can't take it. My heart can't take it. However, the riffs for the prequel trilogy, oh, I am all in on those. They're fantastic. And the riffs for the room make the room watchable for me. Agreed. Because I can't sit down and watch The Room unless I've got riff tracks going. Mm-hmm. I'm like that about a lot. Yeah, I'm like that about a lot of their movies. Like The Wicker Man, the Neil LeBute Wicker Man is just atrocious. But the riff is so good that I bought the DVD so I could watch the movie with the riffs. It's a treat. Yeah, they definitely make a lot of things better. And then, yeah, just how they splintered with riff tracks. And I just found out that the Mads do their own thing. The Mads are back, yeah. And then at, what was there was the one with Joel and 
I think it was Mary Jo and Frank. That's Cinematic Titanic. They're the only people who do this particular comedy, aside from Red Letter Media, who really are mockers, in my opinion. But they keep doing it just in different forms across the years. And it's just, it's funny to me that this is what they know how to do. So they're sticking to this one very narrow band of comedy. And I'm not saying that's somehow limiting them or that no one else can do it. It's more just, this is an odd thing to do. Trying to explain science theater to people, like I have a Tom Servo tattoo. And so trying to explain to people what it is in a little bite-sized, freaking impossible if they don't know. Yeah, unless they have seen the silhouettes on the screen, they don't get it. And that was shorthand for a lot of years was just those silhouettes. So you would just see that and you're like, oh, okay, fellow MST3K person. And then even talking about like technology and like how they're all doing these things, but they're doing it in slightly different ways or repackaging. Once we got away from television and had the riff tracks, that freed us up to do whatever because we weren't beholden to rights. So it was a freeing experience but at the same time it's no i want to sit down and have this all packaged up for me i would like to have the riff tracks of wicker man on the actual dvd as like one of the commentary tracks yeah me too i don't know that's ever in the cards though especially for somebody like neil labute but yeah i would like that too i don't think gosh now i'm thinking about that like whether somebody like tommy Wiseau would ever put a riff tracks as a dvd track I don't think so, but man, it would be fun. (laughs) The thing that continues to engage me about Mystery Science is how thoroughly they know movies and how, even though it seems like what they're doing is making jokes about something they don't understand very well, instead what they're doing is like showing me that tons of bad movies are padded out with driving and parking. Like I never would have really recognized that without them pointing it out all the time. Or... I'm trying to think of other examples or staging a set so that you have to walk a really long way from here to there in order to, and it's such a waste of time. It's a waste of the audience's time. It was a waste of the actor's time when it was filmed. They know how to make a movie. The fact that they're not making movies is not because they can't. It's just, this is what they do is it's a form of criticism. In my opinion. The other thing that I love is how they do not care. If you get the joke, they're making the joke for themselves. And if you also understand what Menards is, great. And if you don't, you have to look it up. Too bad. I just, I think that's wonderful. And that's the standard that I follow in my own writing. Yeah. Speaking of Menards, that is so central to Sanas Fanguli, aka Svanguli, and just those jokes, because we didn't have a Menards in Michigan when I started watching Svanguli. And then once we got one, I was like, oh, okay. Now I say it like they say it on the show. <laughs> I'm a coastal person. Like I've lived on the East Coast and on the West Coast, but never in the Midwest. So part of the charm of mystery science is how Midwestern it is and how a lot of the jokes are about stuff that happens in the Midwest. Like the when they do Bill Rubane movies, which are often Wisconsin, like they're they make all these jokes about Wisconsin where I'm like, I know that you're not just looking down on the Midwest. I know that it's because you live there and you're making jokes about cheese curds because you've eaten them. No, there's something very different about that. Yeah, I don't feel like they're vicious about things, that they're more observational comedy, which is a weird thing to say about MST3K. What movies would you want to read about in a book like this? Gosh, that's really tough, because I always enjoy movies that, like we were saying, swing for the fences, and sometimes they just end up 
a mess. There's one from Israel called Message from the Future, which I think is really up there and just tries to do its thing. Even something like the Apple, I think, would be a perfect one for that. Somehow I psychically knew you were going to mention the Apple. A lot of people talk about the Apple. I love musicals and I love bad musicals, especially bad musicals with good songs or decent songs. But then you get to something where it's like repo a genetic opera and you're like, did you try to make this bad on purpose or just is this a bad movie? Because I, those songs are impossible to me listen to them and i'm just like there's no melody to these how can this be a musical when there's no melody to a song i don't know if that would actually fit because i think that's a very bad movie but i'm not sure if that's a bad movie on purpose or just by accident and i love this movie a lot but for some reason the first movie that popped into my mind when you asked me that question was fade to black i just watched that for the first time a few months ago and i loved it it's really unique and I watched it at the same time as another, like a, a little horror movie about a bunch of characters who are trapped in a theater and someone is killing them all. And that one was very, n- not very good. Was that popcorn? No, I can't remember the name of it, but I mean, like a stage theater, not a movie theater. But I loved Fade to Black. And I thought that there were so many different things going on in it, just like Frozen Scream, like there's so many weird things happening in frozen scream that unpicking them all is messiah of evil seems very normal compared to movies like that i have never even heard of frozen scream so as soon as we're done with this i'm going to be looking that up yeah check it out it's unique going back to the book again i wanted to ask you about the layout and especially about the cover for folks that are listening at home you've got a nice beautiful blow up of the cover behind you Who did that and why these particular people from these films? The design was completely done by the wonderful Incher Yo, who works, he's half of the publishing team at Castle Bridge Media. And he is just really freaking good at his job. He brought me this cover and said, what do you think? And I said, no notes, love it. He read the book and was like, I think I should spotlight John Travolta popping out his leg and Nomi leaning out from the stripper pole. And I just, I love it so much. I love what he did with it. And I have no complaints. And the same goes for the interior design. Some of the pictures I picked, but a lot of them he picked. And I could not be happier about the design. And none of it was up to me. So (laughs) I would have made the font a little bigger if it was me, but they said no. That's more pages, that's more weight, cost-effective. Make it all five-point. One of the only choices that I made was the blurbs because I wanted, and I wrote about this for Airmail, I wanted a mix of people from the prestigious side of criticism and people from the bad movie Underworld. So I got Ty Burr, who wrote one of my very favorite books about film, Gods Like Us. He was the film critic for the Boston Globe for many years. And I love his work about classical Hollywood so much that I really hoped that he would like this book, and he did. And then I asked Greg Sestero, who we all know from The Room, but who also wrote one of my very favorite books about film, The Disaster Artist, which was itself adapted into a movie. And then I asked Mary Jo Peel, who I hope we all know from Rift Tracks and Mystery Science and Cinematic Titanic, and she also liked the book, thank goodness. And so that's all me. 
but everything else is Castle Bridge. They know what they're doing. I was like, wow, what an interesting mix when I saw those blurbs. But I was like, yeah, that fits because it's such an interesting mix of essays and just where we're coming from with this stuff. Yeah. Again, I really can't thank you enough for putting so much effort into this and really putting a spotlight onto these things and why they're important for us to look at and to delve into. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm really pleased that people have liked it so much. I wish that there was a, like a screening series where you could come in and sell your book and show two or three of these films, because I think more people should be able to actually experience bad movies, especially with an audience, because that's a whole different thing than the isolated sitting at home with this on my DVD player, because I've never seen the room with an audience. I imagine that's way different than seeing it at home with the riff tracks playing and just that energy that you get. I've never seen Plan 9 from Outer Space with an audience. I imagine that's a hoot. The good news is I am running a virtual version of these where once a month I'm screening a movie somehow related to my book. So last month I screened after last season. This month I screened Girl in Gold Boots, which is one of my very favorite movies, bad movies. <laughs> and next month I'm screening both a double feature of both versions of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I'm not sure how long this will go on and how many different movies I'll do, but my hope is get people to do the virtual watch along for this exact reason, because it's really hard to watch bad movies by yourself. The first time I saw The Room, I was alone in my living room, and I was so dismayed that after the first 10 minutes or something, I put on the riff tracks because I was like, I can't. I wanted to watch it alone and then watch it again to pick up what I could first before I could not believe what I was watching. However, watching it with an audience is fun. Watching after last season on a watch along with a bunch of people while we were chatting virtually was so much easier than watching it by myself. So Completely agreed. Their bad movies are way better with an audience. And I do wish I had a local theater that I could be like, hey, could you decide not to take any profits for one night a month and I'll just come and sell my book and talk about the movie? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. But that's just not how it's worked out so far. You made a very clear distinction a few minutes ago by saying that my favorite movie, my favorite bad movie. What do you think about the term guilty pleasure? I wrote an article about that for LARB that hasn't come out yet. In my opinion, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. And the only thing that distinguishes a guilty pleasure from a pleasure is your feeling that you should somehow be better than this. And I think that's nonsense. It's distinguishing between high art and low art in a way that will benefit nobody except these arbiters of taste who have to have some kind of moral authority in some way. And the way that they've decided to have it is by being like, I know what's good. And thus, I distinguish this from this. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have categories for things because it doesn't make sense to say that a movie like Ordette is the same as a movie like Staying Alive. They're not the same. I get equal amounts of pleasure from watching them, but I know what to talk about depending on the person that I'm interviewing with. But yeah, I think Guilty Pleasure is a meaningless term. And I think it has very little to do with how we experience film. But it's so bad, it's good. Dana Stevens introduced this term to me when she was reviewing the Twilight movies, juice bomb. 
she thinks that the Twilight movies are absolutely juice bombs because what they are is they're terrible, but oh my God, the pleasure you get out of watching them. Possibly the sort of most highbrow juice bombs I can think of are like Douglas Sirk movies, which give you this feeling of pleasure because you're following a melodrama and humans love melodrama. Sorry, we do. But they all, and they also have very high um, aesthetic qualities. But even low quality melodramas can still be juice bombs because they give you the same feelings that Douglas Sirk movies give you. They're just not as well constructed. So bad it's good is not as useful to me as a term as juice bomb. I know if a movie's good or bad, but I also know if I enjoy it or not. So Free Jack's a bad movie, but I love it. Absolutely love it. (laughs) Why should I feel guilty about liking something? I don't know. I was writing about this in the context of these gothic romances that I've recently started reading by a writer called Barbara Michaels, who wrote in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And so she just turned out these books by the dozen. Girl goes to a house, finds a bunch of dark secrets, falls in love. It's the same thing over and over. But there's such a pleasure. And they're so like, I love reading them on planes because I just don't notice anything else around me. I'm just with this girl in this haunted house. And I'm not going to say that I'm somehow less capable as a critic because I enjoy these books. I'm just not. I think it's a silly thing to say. I can still enjoy David Foster Wallace and Cormac McCarthy, rest in peace, but it just doesn't follow that I'm somehow worse at art because I enjoy something that's not good art. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all of your writing? My website, kcoliron.com, is the nexus of all things related to me. I am on Twitter 99% of the time, and my handle is fairyfrigida, F-E-R-I-F-R-I-G-I-D-A. My last name is distinctive enough that if you search me, you'll find me. (laughs) The best place to buy my book is Amazon, but you can also PayPal me $17 and I'll send you a signed copy and some stickers. Only $17? That's a bargain. When you buy them at cost, you can afford to (laughs) sell them a little cheaper. (laughs) What are you working on right now? I'm working on a novel that isn't working. (laughs) I'm writing this novel about Casablanca. The intention is to tell Casablanca from Ilsa's point of view. So I spent months and months doing research about Europe in the 1930s. I went to Sweden. I did all of this stuff. And the book is just not coming. It's just not coming out. And I don't know. At this point, I'm thinking of holding myself up in a cave with literally nothing to do. But write the book because I can't make it go. But the less despair-inducing thing to say is I'm continuing to work as the managing editor of X-Ray, which is literary magazine. And it's growing so much right now that's taking up a huge portion of my time. And I'm probably making it take up a much bigger portion of my time than it needs to so that I don't have to write my novel. It sounds like a fascinating concept. Yeah. And I think it's very saleable. And if I could just get the damn thing out, then it would be great. I would have a bestseller if I would just write it. Thank you so much for your time today. This was so great talking with you. Oh, same here. Thank you so much. 